0: Our scripture lesson tonight comes from Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. Here now, the word of the Lord. We'll start in chapter 3, verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Erodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, with thanksgiving, And the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. At the end of chapter 3, Paul has emphasized how our, our citizenship is in heaven. Uh, that He's, he, he's writing to, to Philippi, a Roman colony, where to be a, a citizen of Philippi is to be a Roman citizen. And so when he talks to the Philippians, he's talking to people who are very well aware of what citizenship means in their earthly context. And Paul is saying that your citizenship is in heaven. And from heaven, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies, who will transform our our bodies of humiliation and and to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So we saw last time that to be a citizen of heaven means that you press on through all earthly trials that you might attain by any means possible, as he says earlier in the chapter, the resurrection from the dead. in fact this connects rather well with what psalm 30 was saying this morning in terms of how paul or how david saw the dedication of the temple as his own resurrection in a manner of speaking david sees that's where the story is going paul sees that's where the story is going paul sees it a lot more clearly than david did but paul is now driving towards the end of his epistle building on everything that's come before and now he comes to what I consider is called the sort of the hinge verse in chapter 4 verse 1 which has which draws up what he's been saying in chapter 3 and will continue pointing forward into chapter 4 therefore my brothers whom I love and long for my joy and crown stand firm thus in the lord my beloved we mentioned at the end last time that there's you just can't can't possibly pack any more terms of endearment into one sentence than Paul manages in this one sentence. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Now, when he refers to them as my joy and crown, what's he referring to there? It's, it's not the crown of life, which you hear about in, in James or Revelation, or the, or the crown of righteousness that Paul speaks of in Second Timothy This is what scripture speaks of as belonging to all believers who persevere through suffering to the end. Now, it might be something closer to what Peter in 1 Peter 5 refers to as the crown of glory that Peter says will be given to faithful elders at Christ's coming. Or that Paul refers to in 1 Thessalonians 2, my crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming. Paul has used the image of the runner pressing on, pursuing the goal, the prize. And now he uses the image of the crown, the victor's wreath, as, and he says to to the Philippians, You are my joy and crown. The crown is the the public sign, the visible evidence that Paul has not labored in vain, uh, something he had mentioned earlier in chapter 2, verse 16. So there's a way in which here in chapter 4 where we're, Paul's book ending with what he had said in chapter 1 verse 27 where he had urged the Philippians to let their manner of life be worthy of the gospel so that he might hear that they were standing firm in one spirit. He's basically saying my ministry in the gospel among you is, is to bear fruit in your lives so that you might and he says you are my joy and crown Now he concludes with the same exhortation to stand firm at the end of his epistle. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. But he has some concluding exhortations to to deal with a problem in the church in Philippi. And the problem is that the mind of Christ that he has been expounding throughout the epistle has not been evident in the life of the church in Philippi. The problem is, is that Christians are not living according to the mind of Christ. And so he says in verse 2, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now, to agree in the Lord is to have the same mind. This is the same word for "nao" oh, that we've been seeing over and over and over and over and over again throughout Paul's epistle here. He's, it's the same word he had used to say have the same mind back in chapter 2, to have the mind of Christ in chapter 2. So he's used this, over and over throughout the epistle and he's saying, and here's the problem, Eurodia and Syntyche aren't having the same mind in the Lord. Now, and and he he goes on in verse 3 to say, yes, I ask you also true companion, uh, he he doesn't name the true companion, but he basically, uh, plainly, probably this is one of the leaders of the church, one of the, the pastors of the church, elders of the church, uh, But I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, what's Paul doing here? Paul is singling out these two women by name. How often does Paul name the people that are sort of part of the problem or yeah, in the church that he's writing to I'll, I'll, I'll save you the time <laughs> the only times he ever does it in any of his other epistles are when he's talking about people who are outside the church who have been kicked out of the church and are no longer part of the church if you, you know in Galatians nope not there first Corinthians you'd think oh in first Corinthians he's got to name somebody right nope only people he names in first Corinthians, are the people he's saying, look to these people, these are the ones. So, what's he doing here? Now, you you better believe there's a, a group of scholars who have said, ah, Paul's a misogynist. See, here's the evidence. I don't think that's what Paul's doing here. Why is, why is Paul singling them out by name? Because, I mean, this is a, public shaming. Just imagine for a moment, you're sitting there in the church in Philippi, and, oh, we're going to hear an epistle from Paul. And then you're called out in front of the whole congregation in Paul's epistle. What's Paul doing? Now, we have other examples from the ancient world of people doing this sort of thing. And now, there are examples where it was just done badly, I'm not going to include those. Usually, when this is done in the ancient world, the person writing the letter already knows the outcome. There's been back-channel negotiations. <laughs> because pretty clearly in 1 Corinthians, there hasn't been back or whatever back-channel negotiations have gone on hasn't worked. So Paul doesn't name the guy. Why does he name Euodia and Syntyche? And also, notice how he refers to them. Help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. This is a rather optimistic way of t- putting it in the sense of what is he accomplishing here? What is he seeking to do? He, I won't say he necessarily already knows the outcome, but he's very confident that what's needed to get them over the edge, you might say, is to say, all right, ladies, agree in in the Lord. Have the mind of Christ. Paul is confident that they will respond well and will do... as he had said earlier in his epistle, chapter 2, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. If you think about when we've done public discipline at Mishana Covenant, we don't do it before we're sure that... We've already dealt with them when they've done it. And now they come forward, and so it's actually their restoration that is public, you might say. Oh, I realize there are times when if they're unrepentant and they, and they bolt, well, that's a different question. But when we've done that with them present, it's because they've repented. And so this is where, it's, this, this is part of, I would suggest, Euodia and Syntyche's restoration process, you might say. Plainly, he thinks very highly of these women. He says they have labored side by side with him in the gospel. The word labor side by side is is used earlier in chapter 1, verse 27, when Paul says that he wants to hear that the Philippians are striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, we've seen throughout this epistle that Paul is concerned that there may be issues between the leadership and the congregation may not be sort of following their leaders properly. He had addressed the saints with the bishops and deacons in chapter 1, verse 1, and his general concern with grumbling and disputing in chapter 2 now seems to come out in a particular application to Euodia and Syntyche. So, So plainly, these were two powerful women who are locked in some sort of conflict. And Paul also plainly has no difficulty with the fact that there are powerful women in the church. There should be wise, powerful women who can teach and encourage and labor side by side in the gospel. After all, you can tell from Paul's admonition, he's not trying to get these women to shut up. He's trying to get them to have the mind of Christ. I almost kind of wish, agree. agree they didn't use the word agree in the translation here because it's to think The same way, to have the same thoughts, to have have the mind of Christ, to agree in the Lord means have the mind, the same mind in the Lord. And Paul's exhortation to these women speaks not just to them, but to all of us, to have the same mind in the Lord. It's the same word that we've heard in last time in chapter three, verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way, have this mind. And if anything you think otherwise, if you have a different mind, God will reveal that also to you. And this is ultimately then the same mind that he spoke of in chapter 2. So it's not that Euodia needs to agree with Syntyche or Syntyche needs to agree with Euodia. He's not choosing sides. He tells them both to have the mind of Christ. Now I'm sure Euodia was thinking, Paul, you got to show Syntyche that she's the problem. And probably Syntyche was thinking, Euodia just doesn't get it. But Paul doesn't fall into their trap. It's tempting to think, Pastor, you got to fix my husband. Those people over there, they have a real problem. Now, it's probably true. Your your husband needs to be fixed. And yes, those people have a real problem. But so often what we need to where we need to start is oh, I have a problem. And I need to love the way that Christ has loved me. I need the mind of Christ. Likewise, Paul sees that there's a problem among the women in the church at Philippi. It's not just chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 that rumble in the background of these verses, but also chapter four, uh, verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Euodia, Syntyche, you're grumbling. You're disputing with each other. And this demonstrates that you're not thinking with the mind of Christ. And so Paul calls his unnamed true companion, as well as Clement and the rest of the church, to to help these women to come to the mind of Christ together, that when we see our brothers or sisters quarreling, that we should seek to call both parties to think with the mind of Christ. Now, how do we do this in the midst of these situations? Well, I'd suggest that the central section of the passage in, in verses four through seven is where Paul lays out, here's how you do it. It's not just that he, he, he doesn't just sort of like say that to you, you to get the and then move on to some other topic. He's actually saying, and here's how you think with the mind of Christ. First, anybody surprised by this by this point in Philippians? Rejoice in the Lord always. Paul just keeps saying it. Rejoice again. I will say rejoice. That might sound odd. He's talking about the failure of the church in Philippi to demonstrate the mind of Christ, and he says, okay, how do you address it? Rejoice in the Lord. What has Paul been doing with joy throughout this epistle? He rejoices that the gospel goes forth regardless of circumstance in chapter 1, verse 18. He rejoices to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial liturgy of their faith in chapter 2, verse 17 and calls them to rejoice that he's going through this suffering as well. Rejoicing in the Lord does not mean put a happy face on and pretend everything's okay. Rejoicing in the Lord means that you are glad, you are joyful, that you have the mind of Christ. And what was the mind of Christ? I know, I keep saying that. What was that again? Have this same mind in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant and being found in human form. He humbled himself even to the point of death, even death on a cross. The mind of Christ means to put the interests of others ahead of your own. The mind of Christ means to not be about what's best for me, but to be about what is best, what does Jesus call for? How do we have the mind of him who loved us? Moises Silva points out that all of Paul's exhortations to joy seem a bit odd. In chapter 1, verse 28, it was the threat posed by their opponents. That also comes up in chapter 3, verses 2 2 and 18. Also, their concern for the apostle in prison in chapters 1 and again in chapter 4. Even the trauma created by selfishness within the church that we're looking at here. All these things would seem to fly in the face of joy. How can we possibly rejoice in the midst of these circumstances? Well, when I reminded you what the mind of Christ was, I, I kind of sell short. Paul continues, the mind of Christ isn't just, he suffered! But, what was it? That, therefore, God also exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. After all, for Jesus, it was, for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. The reason for our joy is because Jesus has been raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of the Father. And that is why the joy that we should have is joy in the Lord. It's a joy in the Lord Jesus. And note that the return of the Lord is essential to this mentality. Verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. And when he says the Lord is at hand, that's a reference to He's returning. He's not, yeah, he, he is coming again. And the idea of reasonableness in verse 5, or, or gentleness as some translate it, is bound up with the idea of contentment that Paul is moving towards later. This word means, means reasonable or equitable or gentle. And, and the point is that when you have the mind of Christ, then you're not concerned with your own rights, your own agenda. And so even when you have been treated unjustly, you will humble yourself. You will not worry about whether you are being treated fairly, but whether you are treating others fairly. You're not concerned that others treat you with gentleness, but with whether you treat others in that way. In other words, Paul's now making the the same point in different words that he had said back in chapter 2 when he had told us to put the interests of others ahead of our own, not seeking our own interests, but the interests of Christ. And besides you, and Syntyche. What's the point of your rivalry? What is the point of your contention and disputing? The Lord is at hand. All through Philippians, Paul has been referring to the day of Christ. If the day of Christ is at hand, if the coming of the Lord is near, why are you seeking your own interests? Where is the fruit in that? And this emphasis on the Lord's return then drives the, the final imperative here in verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Don't be anxious. Pray. Don't be anxious, even about Yodia and Sintiki. God has promised that He will complete His good work in us in the day of Christ. I'm not worried about Yodia and Sintiki. In fact, Paul seems very confident. That's going to be resolved. That'll be... God has promised. If he, if there is, they're, they're going to. They, so I press on. I pursue the goal. When you have that mind, when you pursue that goal, when the one thing that you seek after is that I might, by any means, attain the resurrection from the dead, it's awfully hard to get riled up over the imperfections of life. I speak as one who, I get riled up. But generally not when I'm focused on that by any means I might attain the resurrection from the dead. Because the one who has that mindset, the mind of Christ, knows Christ. And if you know Christ, then your response to the everything of life is to pray. And how should you pray? Well, Paul tells us. Let your requests be made known to God. Tell God what your requests are. Why are you worried? Your God is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the same Jesus who has been given the name above every name, the same Jesus whom you know and to whom you are being conformed. So why are you worried? In everything by prayer and supplication, in everything, in every situation you face, Come to God. What do you face? Persecution? Conflict? Anything? What do you face? Depression? Anxiety? Pray. And pray with thanksgiving. Don't forget that part. Indeed, if, if you forget thanksgiving in your prayer, you've forgotten the point of prayer. Because if you neglect thanksgiving in your prayers and supplications, then your prayers are simply another form of worrying. You're just worrying out loud to God. Now, I'll grant you, worrying out loud to God is a slight step better than just worrying to yourself. But I only call it a slight step better because at least you're acknowledging God. Yay, Good. that's a good start. But there's no thanksgiving in your prayers? Then that means you're not actually remembering who you're talking to. Because what has God done? He sent His Son to join Himself to our humanity. He, he sent His Spirit to join us to Jesus. If if we can't at least thank God for that, I, mean, I realize there are moments in life where there may be nothing else you can think of that you're thankful for. But you always got that. You always got the incarnation where Jesus came in our flesh. You got his atoning death on the cross and his sending of the Holy Spirit. You always got that. There's always that to thank God for. Because that means that whatever story I'm in and whatever point I'm at, I don't know what God's doing right now. That's not my business. But I know where the story is going. Pray always with thanksgiving. And when you have this mind, this way of thinking, this way of praying, then truly the peace of God, verse 7, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, Notice what the peace of God is doing. The peace of God is guarding your heart and mind. What's he saying? Well, in the Roman world, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, was preserved by a powerful emperor who maintained such a powerful army that no one dared challenge him. Paul here proclaims the peace of God. Now, so, when it talks about how the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds... I know we're tended in our modern sense to make this all about my personal experience. Paul's not talking about personal experience here. He's talking about the objective reality of the peace of God. The Philippians were used to how the peace of Rome guarded their city. Paul says, the peace of God. What is the peace of God? When the Prince of Peace was raised from the dead, seated at the right hand of God, Satan was cast out, he he could no longer accuse you before the Father, therefore God's peace has been established. We don't yet see everything under his feet, but we see Jesus. And because Jesus sits at the right hand of God, the peace of God has been established. So this is an objective reality, not a subjective feeling. Now, For your encouragement, the subjective feeling comes in just a minute. But he starts with, because trust me, if the objective reality ain't there, what good is a subjective feeling? I feel fine today. Never mind that who knows what will happen tomorrow. No, no. The objective reality, the peace of God has been established because King Jesus sits on the throne. Peace of God, not peace of Rome, peace of God. That was what will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Jesus. And that's why this peace is called a peace which surpasses all understanding. Now, In light of all of Paul's emphasis on thinking and knowing in Philippians, this is an important point, God's peace transcends our intellectual powers precisely because believers experience it when it is unexpected, in circumstances that make it appear impossible. Paul suffering in prison... The Philippians threatened by quarrels within, enemies without. This peace is an objective reality because Jesus is seated at the right hand of God as King of kings and Lord of lords. Therefore, we should have the subjective experience of that peace because the objective peace of God guards our hearts and minds. And our hearts and minds are subjective. That's about us. The peace of God guards us in our daily experience. Verses 8 and 9 then conclude our passage with an exhortation to think, verse 8, and do, verse 9. Think about these things, verse 8. Practice these things, verse 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So plainly, Paul says that thinking is essential to the Christian life, but if thinking never results in action, if you never get around to practicing these things, then you're not thinking straight. But he again starts with the thinking. And he starts with these six whatever's whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. Now, these, this way of talking would make the Philippians think about their 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 Greek and Roman concept of virtue. And in fact, the word virtue is the word translated excellence. If there is any excellence, but while Paul uses the language of Roman virtue he's fleshing out what it means to be a citizen of heaven. He's talking about Christian virtue. In effect, he's, he's saying, you know what your culture thinks is, is the highest pinnacle of attainment, to be a virtuous man, an honorable citizen. Well, I'm calling you to something higher, the virtuous and honorable life of the heavenly citizen. If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. The good, the true, and the beautiful were said to be the the focus of humanity. Consider these things, mull over these things, meditate on these things. After all, if you're if you're filling your mind with lies, that's not going to help. So whatever is true, if your if your mind is in the gutter, well, that's not honorable. If you're focusing on wicked, evil things, that's not just. So whatever is pure whatever is lovely whatever is commendable whatever is excellent think about these things if you're if you're meditating on things that are opposed to this then you're actually attacking the peace of god you're fighting against the peace of god the peace of god remember this is this is the kingdom of jesus we're talking about jesus is sitting on the throne he has established the peace of god And his peace is a peace that is characterized by that which is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, excellent. And if, so I, I'd ask, what are you filling your mind with? What are you thinking about? When you have spare time in your day, where does your mind go? Uh, What do you fill the odds and ends of your days with? Are you filling your life with things that are just, pure, commendable, lovely, true, honorable from the standpoint of the kingdom of heaven, from the standpoint of the peace of God. So think about these things, as Paul says here, is ultimately no different than what he said earlier. Have this mind among yourselves. The mindset of humility and self-sacrificial love is still the mindset that is, is what shows us what is just, pure, honorable, and true. If you rely on our culture to tell you what is just, just and honorable and pure, you'll go astray. And that's true whatever culture. This is not just a jab at liberal culture. Liberal culture, conservative culture, American culture, English culture, Chinese culture, Russian culture. If you rely on your culture, whatever your culture may be, to tell you what is just and true and honorable. No, no. Listen to what God says. Search the scriptures. Know the mind of Christ. And so it's not, and it's not just enough to think about these things. Thinking's important, but if if thinking was all he all he would cared about, then he could have said, sort of, "Whoa, what you've heard from me." But he also, but he says instead, "What you have learned from me." This comes from the same root as the word for disciple, as in making disciples. The point of learning is not just intellectual study. The idea of learning engages the whole person. And when you see the three verbs that follow this, what you have learned and received and heard and seen. Notice, learning involves receiving, which is not just that you listened to it, but that you received it, that you took it into yourself and made it a part of you. Are you taking in the word of God? so that it becomes a part of you, so that you practice it, so it becomes the way you live, the way you think, the way you do. And then, Paul says, and what you have heard and seen, Paul says, it's not enough for me to say it. I also have to live it. But what you have learned, received, heard, and seen in me, Paul says, practice these things. And that's a helpful way of putting it. Virtue takes practice. It takes doing it, and and sometimes sometimes you have to do it even when you don't really feel like it. Sometimes you have to do it when you feel like this feels awkward. It doesn't, it doesn't even feel sincere. It doesn't feel like I really mean it. So, do like, you know how many times people have gotten in trouble for saying, "Well, I won't do it until I until it's sincere." Hmm. If it's the right thing to do, it's the right thing to do whether you feel like it or not. Paul says that when you think about these things, when you put them into practice, then the God of peace will be with you. Notice, not just the peace of God. The peace of God was the objective new reality of Christ's kingdom. And that's, that's a glorious thing, the peace of God. But he's got something better for you. It's not just... You get to live in the kingdom of God. But no, the God of peace will be with you. God is not just interested in, I'm establishing my kingdom, uh, you guys can all, all live over here now. Great. No. He joins you to himself so that he might be with you. This is what Emmanuel was all about. God with us. Not just with us in a distant sense of, oh good, he he, 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 he likes us now. But with us in joining himself to our nature that he might join us to himself. And as we walk by the Spirit, as we think and do according to the pattern that we have learned, the God of peace is with us. Now, there is a warning here As the Philippians have discovered, if you grumble and dispute and quarrel and forsake the mind of Christ and you're warring against the peace of God, well, then the God of peace will have to come and rebuke you. But if you humble yourselves and take up your cross in love for Christ and others, then you will find that the God of peace has taken up his abode in you and that his peace passes understanding and will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we come to you this night because you are the one who has given us all things in your Son, our Lord Jesus. You are the one who has renewed us and brought us back from death. How we marvel at your kindness to us, how we marvel at your great mercy, and we thank you that you have done this. And though we are not what we should be, yet you have shown your great mercy, your great love, and you have done what you said you would do in giving your son as the atoning sacrifice for our sins, that we might no longer walk in the ways of our old lives, but that we might walk in newness of life. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your great mercy. Thank you for your loving kindness that you have shown to us in your Son. And help us, we pray, as you have established your peace, that you have established your kingdom, that your rule might extend throughout all the earth. Grant that we also might walk humbly before you and that we might practice these things the things that we have learned and received and heard and seen, that we might practice these things that you might be with us in living out that which is honorable and just and pure and lovely, commendable, that which is excellent, worthy of praise. Lord, have mercy on us and, and help us in e- each situation we find ourselves in to keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus and to seek not our own interests but the interest of others, that we might seek the interest of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Have mercy, Lord, and forgive us when we don't do this and renew us and strengthen us to do this as we walk before you day by day. We pray for your blessing upon your gospel as it goes forth to the ends of the earth that in every place where your name is proclaimed that even now as the as the sun sets upon this Lord's day, even as your gospel has gone forth in every, t- in every t- nation on earth, even as your gospel has gone forth in so many languages, may it bear fruit that those who have heard would believe, that those who have wavered would be strengthened, that those who have fallen would would be restored, that those, those who are still running from you might know that you are Lord. Have mercy upon us. For Jesus' sake, amen.